Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink podcast and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today we have Greg Lukianoff with us. He is the author of The Coddling of the American Mind, also the founder, the CEO and president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, also known as FIRE. I have to tell you, Greg, that yes, yes, I see your shirt. And look, I have a shirt of an eagle on fire. I wore nice. it for you. So a, yes. A phoenix. I love it. I know. I thought that I was being very, very appropriate for this conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> before we get started, I always ask what we are drinking for this conversation. So Greg, what did you bring to the table? Pink lemonade spindrift um, at only nine calories. Um, it is my preferred seltzer of choice. It's made with real fruit juice. And if I could invest in spindrift, I would, if you can hear me out there. <laughs> Maybe, they, see, this is a PSA, Spendrift, come like, you know, be a- Come find a, me, I'm like your biggest yeah. fan. Yeah, or, and, and you can support this podcast. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, David, what do you have? Again, I went to the drive-thru at McDonald's to get a 99 cent Diet Coke, which is terrible for me, and I should drink Spendrift, which I yes. love, especially the grapefruit flavor, but, you know. Okay, so- I have I'm, to go to Whole Foods for that, so I didn't. <laughs> we've already got a like we're we're having clashing between mcdonald's and healthy spendthrift you know so there's that um i just brought coffee to the table but i have to tell you greg what i did so i collect starbucks mugs and look that's the philadelphia bridge going to new jersey because it's a new jersey mug and this is the closest i could get to you guys in philadelphia so nice that is, yes, not an exciting drink in coffee, but I thought I was, again, trying to play to my audience here. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Greg, I've, I'll start with one really, really big question for you. So in 2018, your book, The Coddling of the American Mind, came out. Now, I've got to tell you, for me, this book was kind of the um, introduction, I think, before, before we saw the world go crazy, before COVID, before George Floyd, before a lot of the DEI um, initiatives and, uh, you know, all this new anti-racism work that we're doing in schools, your book came out. And it was really, for me, the first book that I read where I said, holy crap, like, they're on to something, right? And I don't, I think you picked this up. It was a bellwether, if you will, to a lot of what was going on in the world. And it's funny, in 2018, I also started Truth In Between, which was my writing venture as well. And uh, for me at that time, I was really picking up on polarization, more political polarization, kind of the red blue type stuff. And I feel like we've it's just snowballed since then. So from 2018 to here we sit in 2021, if you were to update your book or say, write a new chapter, what do you think that you would say or what would you write on? Wow. Okay. So one thing you should know is that I have been doing a series called Catching Up with Coddling, um, uh, updating the book. I am on part 18 of it now, um, and we are not quite done with it yet. So some of the entries are 4,000 words long, 5,000 words long. Um, and right now, Height and I, oh, and you, you mentioned me as the author. Um, I'm the co-author. It's me and Jonathan Height. Um, uh, fabulous to work with. But right now we are working on the new afterward, 
for coddling the American mind. And we're having a very hard time keeping it under like 10,000 words because so much has happened. Um, and from doing Catching Up With Coddling, and if people want to find that, that's on my blog, Eternally Radical Idea, um, which is uh, .com, which is a sub blog of the fire.org um, uh, website. And uh, well, one, one thing is uh, the mental health crisis that we saw coming in 2015 has only gotten worse. Um, the suicides are up, unfortunately, for uh, not just uh, college-age women, but for 10 to 14-year-olds, which kills me. Um, depression rates, you know, they seem to have gotten even worse under COVID. Um, so that's bad. Uh, we also, so I, I, I go through like the six factors that we, we, we thought um, uh, were creating the situation we saw. So one was, you know, um, depression. Two uh, was political polarization, like you mentioned, and that's all fine now. Um, as you can tell, it's been fine since 2018. No, that got much, much worse, um, <laughs> obviously. Um, and every, you know, it comes out in every poll. Um, we're in a scary place because of polarization. The third thing we talked about, and probably the only ones that, I, that I've seen any glimmer of improvement are the two chapters on parenting. One is about paranoid parenting, which I think we're a little bit more introspective about at least. Um, I don't know if we've actually improved the way we parent. Uh, we'll see how COVID worked out. I mean, I was forced to spend lots of time with my two and four-year-olds. And so therefore I'm going to remember quite fondly lockdown. And, uh, minus the fact that I was afraid for my parents, lockdown, I had to spend a lot of time with my kids. So like, that was amazing for me. Um, so paranoid parenting, free play is the only one that's really improved. Um, states across the country, and in no small part due to Lenore Skenazy, who we feature in the book, um, have passed free-range kids laws, which basically means you're not going to get arrested for letting your 10-year-old ride, ride his bike to school. So that's the, that's the only improvement. The next two, um, which are why, why universities have gotten so, hit so bad, were um, a bureaucratization. Um, and corporatization, um, which has only gotten worse. Uh, a lot of universities during lockdown when they couldn't make money, you know, laid off professors before they're laying off administrators, which is insane. Um, and when it, and the final chapter, and it was only one chapter on it, was new ideas about social justice. Um, everybody wanted us to put that front and center as like, that's the only cause, but we don't believe that. We believe most things are caused by multiple things. Uh, so the social justice, the new ideas of social justice have absolutely exploded. At a, if there's something we got wrong, we didn't expect how fast uh, it would be everywhere. And I'd say that, and just to, to, to close out on this, the two things that I thought we should have hit a little bit harder um, it was um, one, income stratification, that, that, that essentially like the idea of Parents, and there's there's been interesting research that's come out since about how a lot of the anxiety that kids are experiencing is just directly coming from the parents, um, that, that them being stressed out is stressing out their kids. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I think about my friends who, I'm a lawyer, and my, my friends who want like law firm roots, it is grueling. Um, and so like the idea that in order to keep up, keep in the upper class, you have to run incredibly fast now. Um, the or or to get there, you have to run even faster. Uh, that that's that, that's translating down to kids. So I do think the you know the creation of like an Uber class has something to do with it. And lastly, we didn't do a great job of explaining where these ideas of social justice, how they got to the kids in the first place. Uh, and those are the last three sections that I want to write for catching up with coddling. Um, and one theory that we've looked into is the radicalization of K through twelve teachers. Um, much worse than we thought, but FIRE saw this coming way back in 2006. We, we, we fought a, um, a social justice, uh, a, a requirement by the governing body, not, um, the accrediting body of, of uh, education schools that you have to show 
your commitment to social justice in order to get your degree. And uh, Teachers College, probably the most eminent education school in the country, had this very explicitly that you have to, to show your commitment to social justice. And we fought that back in 2005. But just having that meant you were already dealing with a very politically homogeneous, very radicalized cohort. So we think that's part of it. We think the gateway drug was anti-bullying, which blew up in, in 2010 due to some very high profile cases. And lastly, we think that social media obviously also played a role in both of those things and, in, and also in the spread of, the, of social justice ideas being used for rhetorical advantage. Ta-da! I'm done. Wow. Okay, David, you go. I'm still writing down notes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So um, we're, we're living in a very striking, it seems, ideological moment. Obviously, you've just sort of traced how we got there. Um, you wrote a piece recently for Ariel on 12 bad free, bad anti-speech ideas. I thought it was a great piece, by the way. We had talked about it um, before you um, before you put it out there. And um, and it seems to have really made the rounds too, by the way. Um, the 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 um, and, and I'm just wondering, you know, what is it that you're seeing now that would lead us to believe that we have a free speech problem and that needs to be addressed? Wow. What is it now that I'm, I mean, what isn't it? <laughs> the, uh, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. So I'm always hesitant to say words like crisis because um, particularly people who want to wish this stuff away are like, well, they, they straw man it into like, well, I can just prove that there's a crisis. And even fire says, I mean, we don't really, most times we don't believe that there's a crisis because a crisis is presumably something that's you know short and attenuated and uh, like a sudden explosion. This has been going on slowly bit by bit for my entire career, and obviously before that, I, I my career at Fire started in two thousand one, um, and so it is a bit of a drip, drip, drip. But on campus, you'll notice um, every five years or so, almost like clockwork, you'll have these big explosions on campus, um, and so it's kind of like the way evolution works. It's like punctuated equilibrium. There is this slide away from free speech that every so often you get this boom, boom, you know, like uh, what happened in 2015 involving Nicholas Christakis. And then you get to 2017, boom, boom, you know, with um, the the attacks when, um, at, at Berkeley when Milo Yiannopoulos was supposed to be there. And then this last year that we saw, um, 2020, was, and I will say this flat out, it was the worst year I have ever seen in terms of ideological censorship. Now, and I want to stress here, and this this bugs me because pe people kind of put the, the, these words in my mouth because when they don't know our work very well. I am the first to say that most of our work is not all that ideological. Um, students get in trouble for normal, uh, normal run of the mill, making the school look bad, you know, having a, a post that uh, complaining about parking. Sometimes they make it sound ideological when it's really just they, they angered an administrator, they angered a professor. Professors get in trouble for making for pushing donors away. This has always happened and it's not right or left. It's just what power does when power is in power. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, and I call that the big middle of fire cases, which the media doesn't like to cover because it doesn't fit a culture war, um, a stereotype either from the right or the left. So it, it tends to just get sort of um, uh, uh, orphaned. But 2020, um, even while almost, you know, 75% of the schools in the country were closed during COVID, we expected things to get more quiet, of course, because people weren't on campus. And we were so wrong. Um, a busy year at fire means we get a, we deal with about a thousand cases. 
Um, and that's pretty good given there's only about 1200, you know, four-year colleges with over a thousand students in the country. But people who also want to wish this away like to say things like, oh, there's 6,000 schools. It's like, yes, there are tons of little tiny schools of, of cosmetology. But when it comes to four-year colleges, over a thousand people, there's only about 12 to 1300. Um, and so on a busy year, we got, uh, a, you know, a thousand uh, cases. This year, one, with most campuses closed, we got 1,500, and they were much more directed at speech. They were going after students who had written things in private messages to people years before that videos that people had sent people on, on Snapchat that they managed to somehow surreptitiously record. Um, it was really this kind of like trying to figure out ways to ruin your friends or enemies. Um, and a number of professors were targeted all over the country, including at, at some very high profile schools. And a conservative that I knew since my first couple weeks at FIRE, um, who, who attributed his sort of bomb throwing conservative um, approach um, to the fact that I introduced him to Lenny Bruce, uh, the work of Lenny Bruce in 2001. I was reading uh, How to Talk Dirty and Influence People at the time. So he, 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 he when I, and I felt like I'm, I'm politically liberal, by the way, and like he created a, um, a, this kind of conservative persona that was really like edgy and that kind of stuff. And I'd, I'd read his stuff sometimes and kind of cringe that I, that I created a monster, but, I, but he was still a nice guy. Um, and he was still willing to fight for his own academic freedom. Um, and he was so effective that he actually got a Fourth Circuit opinion that defended uh, academic freedom for everybody in the Fourth Circuit. They need to be thanking this professor, Mike Adams. But Mike Adams got canceled, for lack of a better word, at UNCW for a something that would have been considered mildly un-PC, you know, 10 years ago, tweet. And um, he killed himself uh, about a week after I... Um, you know, I, I, I thought he'd be fine. He always seemed like someone who was fine. We were overwhelmed with cases. Uh, and Mike Adams, I, I thought, was the one who could totally take it. But it turned out that he was also being, you know, harassed. People were still, like, coming to his house. He, he called, uh, you know, he, he was calling the police. And that's something that I can't, it would take a lot for someone like Mike to do that. And um, he killed himself in mid-July mid last year. So uh, I can prove it to people if they don't believe that there's a, a free speech problem uh, currently. Um, but I feel like at this point, people who believe that are refusing to listen. So, yeah, it's a, I remember hearing you talk about that really heartbreaking. Um, so you focused on campus life and free speech on campus. And we're seeing some of these issues have escaped the academy. And you're, you're seeing these uh, cultural wars fought now and and K through 12, particularly on what's called, you know, CRT in schools and so forth. Um, and that seems to be a backlash, but there's also now this backlash to the backlash. There are people who are saying, you're misconstruing the meaning of CRT. CRT is a, um, is a legal theory that's, you know, and, and that's not what CRT is. And, um, and then there are, um, and there are others who are coming in and saying, well, so CRT is really not being taught anywhere. I'm one, um, and um, and and if you then redefine CRT as a basic outlook that um, oppression is embedded in systems of society, um, then you're are you then then the retort is well no uh, yes of course it is and how could you argue with that and that's a fact not an opinion. Um, what is your view on on this right now as it's playing out in the K through twelve realm and that debate in particular? I'm working on a gigantic piece um, with Adam Goldstein and Ryan Weiss and Bonnie Schneider um, 
all on this topic because we've gotten so many questions about it. And I mean, the number one most maddening thing about people, particularly when they're demanding like a quick answer on this stuff, there are dozens of bills. And if you and if you count revisions, there are hundreds of versions of these anti-CRT bills. Some of them are very poorly worded um, and would be laughed out of court. Others of them are not so laughable. And like, uh, I don't know. Um, North, North Carolina, North Carolina had one that was mostly about like, um, uh, about compelled speech, for example, uh, Idaho, some, some provisions of it were actually, you know, they, they were saying things like you shouldn't be, you know, tormenting kids about their race. And we're writing this gigantic piece because there's so much, you, uh, there's, there's so many levels of analysis you have to put this to. And I'm, and we're trying to, well, not really trying to, um, I, 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 I don't care if the truth makes one side or the other happy. But on this case, it's definitely one where I feel like the truth will make neither side happy, and we're just gonna have, we're just gonna have to take it. And just to do like a quick kind of summary of some of the points we're going to be making, one um, is that these are unconstitutional almost always as applied to higher ed. Um, even when they're applied just to trainings in higher ed, uh, the institutions can claim that they have institutional academic freedom and say that we we can hire whoever we want to do trainings. So in higher ed, it's pretty clear cut. We've been very clear about that at fire. Uh, number two, uh, you know, also besides the idea that there's a jillion of these things, um, I've been watching some people be like, oh, my God, we're turning K through 12 education political. And I'm like, where have you been? Like, mm -hmm. like K through 12 is and I mean, it's political in the literal sense that that, that it, it involves state legislature. It involves local school boards and, and um, all of these things that are intentionally diffuse um, and intentionally political, like in the sense of like it's because it's considered to be um, of, of special democratic concern for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that kids are considered especially uh, vulnerable to indoctrination. That's always been one of the reasons why why the um, why the powers have been uh, disrupted like that. But it's also mandatory. So when you create something that's mandatory, that's supposed to educate students for education democracy, um, and it's not about what higher ed is about, about the creation of new knowledge, it's about inculcating existing facts uh, into children, um, the analysis completely changes. So like watching some people do like politics in K through, in, in, uh, in K through 12 curriculum, it's like it's always been politics, as long as like states have been involved at least. Uh, three, um, the most of the almost all of the laws as applied um, to K through 12 are probably constitutional. Um, uh, that doesn't mean they're necessarily wise, but they're constitutional because the legislatures always have had a great deal of say in what, um, uh, in what curriculum can be. We also lay out the fact that um, under some circumstances could uh, local school districts or um, uh, individual teachers potentially uh, uh, sue on the basis of some of the things that come out of the curriculum um, that they think violates either their free speech rights or maybe some kind of institutional academic freedom right? Possibly. Um, and, and you can't rule that out that they could be unconstitutional as applied um, at the same time. There, you don't need the same kind of, uh, since they're curriculum, it's, it's basically considered to be the government speaking. So you don't need to have the same kind of precision that you would say writing a code that touches on speech for a regular citizen, for example. Um, and then we try to really get into and help people who uh, don't, who, who think this is all a, a, a tempest in a teapot and, and a right wing hoax and all this kind of stuff about the examples of, no, this stuff is this stuff is really happening. Like the, the, there's, there's a suit right now in Las Vegas, biracial student. Um, his uh, mother was black, is black. His father was white and is deceased. 
And this kid just got tortured at a school and partially led by the teacher itself, at least, you know, uh, uh, allegedly, according according to the complaint and according to uh, uh, some uh, articles on it. Um, And, you know, it was partially because he was light skinned and he was, you know, even told things like presumably his father must have assaulted um, his mother because that's what, quote unquote, that's what white people do. Um, that's the kind of stuff where you start getting into Title VI territory, where there's, and I, that's another point that I make in the, in the piece, there's going to be a ton of lawsuits, no matter what. Like, um, the Republicans are going to sue. Um, the Oh, and also I try to make the point in there, the people who are complaining about this, who are bringing this to fire, are not right-wingers. Like, the, for the most part, right. we're getting complaints from self-described liberals, a lot of them in New York City, but also across the country, saying, but they're liberals like me. They're like 1983 ACLU liberals, you know, like who don't think that, that schools should be doing engaged in genetic essentialism. Um, so my one of my co-authors is Bonnie Snyder, who works at FIRE. She's coming out with her own book called Undoctrinate, which comes out in September, which is a real overview of, of why this this topic is of concern. Anyway, it's a it's a huge article for a reason. I could keep going, um, but I, I, I'm sure I've said enough. Oh, you'll have to tell me when that does come out, Greg, sure. so that I can link to that. That sounds fascinating. I mean, I'm writing a piece on now on that, and I was looking at the various lawsuits. So the Gabs, uh, Gabrielle Clark, the mother of the senior in Las Vegas that you just mentioned, mm-hmm. uh, that lawsuit, she might be on the, the podcast soon herself. Um, so what you were saying, let me make sure that I understood you, because I was listening to you. You're saying from... It was going to you know, both the left and the right were going to be kind of angered with this piece that you were writing. Let me make sure that I understood that from the right. They were going to be angered because a lot of what you're seeing happening, the bills just I mean, they just don't pass muster. They yeah. just I mean, they're not there's they, they're not going to hold any weight with the, this argument of, con, you know, a constitutional violation. Is that what it, I, I understand you? Right. Yeah. So the, the, there's two reasons. One um, is that attempts to have them apply to higher ed are doomed and probably should be doomed. Okay. Um, the and actually no, should be doomed. Um, when it comes to uh, when it comes to some of the laws for K through twelve, there's a wide there, there's a lot of argument that they get wide berth to, uh, when it comes to constitutional analysis. However, some of the ones that have language like um, that cause you know students emotional distress are poorly worded enough that you are producing the situation where. Uh, critics can say rightfully, like under these laws, would people be nervous about teaching about slavery? Um, and if you take the plain language of of what they say, they have a point. Um, so some some of the more poorly constructed ones are creating this idea. But of course, on the liberal side, that's being treated like, oh, these are designed to stop the teaching of slavery because they don't really understand that, that some of this really aggressive kind of um, I'd say mean spirited genetic essentialism is really is is really out there. So the, some of the conservatives. I mean, to be honest, on, on the CRT debate, like the people who care about it, they just want you to pick a side. They don't really like, I, like I've gotten so many pylons on this stuff. Um, it's like uh, and mm-hmm. they won't actually read what you're saying, right, you know, right, so right. you just got to give up on on engaging with some people. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I think they'll, they'll be mad that I say these don't apply to higher ed and they shouldn't. And that some of the ones are just so poorly structured, they create the argument that um, it's going to chill speech about legitimate, difficult topics. But then we switch over to the idea of saying, but the the stuff that they're afraid of is really out there. They really are trying to sell it to kids. It's genetic essentialism or racial essentialism, as you, as you say it. The idea that you are the sum of your of the color of your skin and not much more. That racism is only something that 
white people can engage in. Also, weirdly, like the idea that race is a social construct, but somehow it's a social construct that means everything. And it's, it, 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 it's, it's a confusing kind of theory. And then, oh, yeah, but then, of course, the critics, the people who are critics of the CRT laws, then point out the fact that, like, well, you can't explain this, you know, um, and therefore you don't know what you're talking about and shouldn't be banning it. And it's like, well, the people who support CRT have a hard time explaining <laughs> its coherence. I, I, I read uh, what I thought was a really fascinating take on this. It's that, um, I'm just trying to remember who tweeted it out yesterday, um, that no one is teaching CRT in school. What they are, what they're teaching is inside a CRT paradigm. Do you agree with that? Um, I think that the way I, I, I get what they're saying, I think the way I'd say it is that there are, are certain ideas from CRT that emerge from CRT that are objectionable to anyone who believes in small L liberalism, um, you know, or just human rights, you know, um, human dignity, that kind of stuff that really um, overgeneralize about humanity, about white people, about black people for that matter. And those that, 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 that it's kind of like a, a bunch of ideas that were generated by this field is what, is what people are really arguing about. So, yeah, I think that, and I think that those, um, I don't know if those ideas create the framework, but they are almost taken for granted now um, in, in a lot of intellectual circles that, for example, only um, white people can be racist uh, because they re redefine racism as, you know, inclination to harm somebody on the basis of the race plus power. And this was an argument that was starting to get some traction when I was in law school back in the 90s. Yeah. And it was already like at Stanford, but I still think it's an absolutely pernicious idea. And it's also incredibly parochial. I mean, like my, my dad is from, uh, my dad's Russian. He grew up in Yugoslavia. My mother's Irish, but she grew up in Britain. I've, you know, the neighborhood I grew up in in the U.S. was a lot of other, you know, first generation kids and immigrant kids themselves. And the idea that only white people can be racist, it just sounds so parochial. It's, it's like my father with, with his Russian accent, like you sound like hick when you say that. You do really think like these other countries can't, like that, that other people can't be racist. And it really is a way, it's just a rhetorical way of saying that they believe that there's a positive version of racism. Like, because it doesn't sound right rhetorically to say, well, this is positive racism versus negative racism. Um, they want to change the language so what they're suggesting doesn't sound like what it really is. Hmm. So on so, that, well, just I, you said something here I want to go back to because I wrote this down. You said one of the things in your book um, was you didn't touch on enough social justice ideas used for rhetorical advantage. And you just mm -hmm. mentioned rhetoric again. Can yep. you flesh that idea out a little bit more? Yeah, sure. Um, this happened early on with like the arguments about privilege. Um, and when privilege started, the idea of check your privilege, you know, being introduced on Twitter, you know, saying, oh, you know, you're, you're what um, people calling you out when they don't like your argument for your white privilege, for example. What's funny about this is it wasn't until I think 2015 that I actually had a person of color bring that up. It was overwhelmingly rich white kids who would call each other out on, on their white privilege. Um, it, it's an up, and in my opinion, it's an upper class, you know, intellectual um, idea. At the same time, there, there's, there were these, um, Kathy Reiswitz, a couple others, like that, they had the, this um, blog for libertarian leaning women where they did a defense of the idea of privilege. Uh, and it echoed so many of the other articles I wrote, which was basically like if they're using it that way, then they're using it wrong. 
Um, and someone even defined privilege as being just count your blessings, you know, like, like that essentially you should be aware that you have, you, you have some advantages as being a, a, being a white person. Um, but the, and what was grating about some of these opinion pieces, and this happens all the time, sometimes I, I think this is what people are getting at when they talk about Mott and Bailey arguments, is that that's not the way they're actually used. They're, they're used that um, they're used rhetorically that someone makes an argument and then you, rather than addressing their argument, you call them out on their privilege if they're white. Um, you actually, as happens time and time again, you call them and call them for their cis, uh, their cis privilege, not being transgender, for heterosexual pr privilege, for white privilege. Um, and I call this the perfect rhetorical fortress. Um, like it's part of a system that uh, people in higher education have figured out this kind of beautifully complex uh, series of arguments that let you not ever get to the substance of someone's point because they're largely repackaged, repackaged at homonyms and dodging techniques that you can spend literally hours arguing to people about this without ever getting the substance of the argument in the first place. And it's the rhetorical use of these ideas to, 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 to just mic drop, uh, you know, debates um, as sometimes use the image. Uh, to just to just uh, prevent the argument from actually taking place in the first place. That's one of the things that is so maddening um, is that people use them rhetorically. What's also maddening is that it's a very gloomy, sad, um, tribalistic way of looking at the world. That essentially, like, really, like after you know the, the success of human rights of the human rights movement and and of enlightenment ideas and and, and of small liberalism, that we're going to go back to thinking ourselves as nothing more than a, than you know blood and history. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So I'm a little older than you. I know that for a fact because I checked your Wikipedia just now. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, when I was 14, I watched this movie called Skokie, which was about the Nazi march in the Jewish neighborhood of Skokie. And um, my dad, who was a civil libertarian and, and Jewish, of course, also, you know, supported the Jewish lawyer, David Goldberger's um, defense of the right of the Nazis to march in Skokie. And I, since that time, I, I, I deeply admired the ACLU and um, would have proudly carried the card. I think, uh, you know, a card carrying member of the ACLU. Um, but see, things have seemingly changed at the ACLU. Um, I'm not sure how much, I'm not sure if there's still a civil war going on there. I get the sense that it's not all lost, but maybe nearly all lost. Maybe you have a sense of that. But either way, the ACLU is not the purest ACLU that defended the Nazis on Skokie. Does there need to be an organization like FIRE, but with an extended mandate that might be able to fight the good fight on civil liberties and free speech today? Uh, that's a great question. And it's something, uh, you know, we think about a lot. Um, when it comes to the ACLU, I mean, I, that was my dream job. I, when I was in law school, I worked at, I interned at the ACLU of Northern California. And it was the thrill of a lifetime to get that job. Because, you know, I'm, I went to law school to do free speech work. I, that's when I met Nadine Strawson, actually separately, uh, met her through Kathleen Sullivan, mm -hmm. um, who still, who, who was always one of my heroes and is now one of my friends. Um, the, uh, I have tremendous admiration for a lot of the people at the ACLU, including Ira Glasser, actually so much so that, that I'm the executive, one of the executive producers of a movie called Mighty Ira, which I'd love you all to all go see. Um, I've seen it on yeah, Amazon. It, it's really, it's really great. And it's about free speech and it's about the life and times of the great Ira Glasser, the, the executive director of the ACLU from the late 1970, uh, from I think 81 to 99. 
um, or 80 to 99. Um, and it, it, you know, it, it, it was the thing that made this little, you know, first generation American say, as a little kid being like, wow, they, they believe in this. They believe in, in, in these ideals to such an extent they're willing to put their own self-interest to one side. That's amazing. So like, that's, that's what got people like me, you know, excited about the ACLU was that they were, they were really willing to defend their enemy. That's just, you know, that's noble. Um, as far as like the current state of the ACLU, I mean, there's, there's an article in the New York times that came out about the ACLU um, I, you know, my Harvey Silverglate, my, uh, my adoptive father, I joke, um, he, he, he co-founder of fire, you know, has some quotes in it. I don't want to go too much into it, partially out of respect for, uh, Nadine Strawson, who, you know, th- thought it was, you know, somewhat unfair and she, she is a dear friend, but I will say, you know, we were pretty psyched to see at the bottom of it, um, a big shout out for fire. Um, someone within the ACLU saying that fire doesn't have some of the same issues that they have because we're, we almost exclusively do free speech and that's important. Um, if you do if you do a lot of different kinds of work advocacy work it's hard to keep all of those uh, all those points in harmony and that's why fire always wants to be narrow in terms of us getting bigger and taking on more work um there's a call for it almost every day for us to do more and to to get bigger and to you know do public education and to take on lawsuits you know outside of higher education and you know we've been approached by people like ira glasser like uh you know some people probably want to be named to do that. And I think that uh, it's time that we, uh, I, I think that our future will involve growth. Um, I don't want to say too much more than that. You know, we, we talked a lot, a little bit about what critical theories are, what critical social mm-hmm. justice are. And it seems to me one of the most challenging claims is this idea that only people affected by ex- their experience, only lived experience has value, gives you moral authority. Um, it's sometimes called standpoint theory or standpoint yep. epistemology. <clears throat> to to what degree is that really the hardest nut to crack? Because as long as people sort of stick by that, it's you and they weaponize it. It's hard to then say that anybody else has free speech, mm-hmm. um, and um, and only the people who have earned it through their lived experience now have free speech. What do you, what do we, I mean, you, you said, well, I mean, you grew up in, um, in, you know, a immigrant area where obviously a lot of other people were experiencing racism and bigotry and so forth. But what do we, how do we tackle that one? Standpoint epistemology is, um, there's a lot of things from the environment that CRT came from that were pretty much only possible due to a surprisingly high level of or low level of viewpoint diversity um that essentially um so like we had crt classes at stanford and you had to like apply to to take them and and you could be turned down like you you had to understand it and be, be they didn't want someone to be too much of a troll like in, in one of those classes was the way it was explained but also was unlike any case I've ever heard of that, that, that you have to kind of come in accepting some of it as true as a premise, which is generally not what you do in law. You come in, you come in skeptical. Right. Um, and I think that a lot of the norms within it took place in, in, in an environment where there was a lot of just conformity pressure that, um, that essentially you, you should agree with this. If you're a good person, it relies a lot on sort of like a, a sense of, of being both, a decent person um, on one level or being ashamed and, and guilty on, on the other. 
And standpoint epistemology, there's truth to it. Um, the idea that only certain people can know what it's like to be certain people, um, you know, like right. that, that uh, uh, and, and that's, that's fair, but it doesn't actually give you any more expertise on any topic outside of what it's like to be you. Furthermore, it's unfalsifiable. Um, but Karl Popper's idea that you, you, know, you shouldn't really um, trust as solid ideas that can never be disproven. Um, and it puts people in a position where they can, you know, um, fashion arguments that support, uh, support, their, um, support their positions based on their, their, their viewpoint, um, their, based on their standpoint that nobody can prove wrong. And if you try to prove it wrong, by the way, you're deeply, deeply immoral for doing it. And so privilege. once again, it, privilege it has, too. Yeah, it, it has this rhetorical, it has this rhetorical advantage. And liberalism is based on an idea of at least when it comes to arguments um, that people are, should be on equal footings. Are people literally on equal footings? No, of course, wealthier people have more greater, greater access to the media. There's all sorts of things that, that uh, CRT rightfully points out that there are, are inequalities and there are power structures and all this kind of stuff. But it doesn't, um, the standpoint, standpoint epistemology, it's not even taken um, as seriously uh, when it goes the other way, you know, like what I, I like, I'll, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, appropriately, I was going, I was going to go on Huffington Post live back when that was a thing, because I was a Huffington Post columnist. And I talked about my family's history, fle fleeing the communists and fighting the communists for that matter. Um, if you can't tell my last name is Russian, my name is Grigory Vasilich. Uh, the, um, uh, that I, uh, I mentioned, you know, my, my family's history with, with, um, uh, with communism. And I was told by the producers like, oh, well then you can't really ask you about that because you won't be objective about communism. And I was like, so I guess my family's lived experience doesn't count here, you know? Like, <laughs> right. So it, 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 the, your lived experience only matters under certain circumstances, um, even if you are, you know, someone who's, who's a dissenter. So for example, if you are a, like Camille Foster, if you are a uh, dissenter on current ideas about what race actually is, and he and he's a very powerful dissenter on, on that, he's a, um, he, I, I would describe him as black, but he prefer not to. He thinks his identity is uh, more interesting than that, he, and vaster than that. Um, so he, he he bristles a little bit about about being called that. Mm -hmm. But um, he, uh, he you know if he sa says my lived experience is blank, uh, people come back to him saying, oh, you have false consciousness if they're old school Marxists. Or they say, "Oh, you have internalized oppression." So it's it's again this perfect rhetorical fortress where it's like, "Wow, you you've got everything." Like, why why do we even need to have arguments if if everything's if our, the dodges are all figured out? Yeah, you know, I keep on going back because this is so curious to me. The um, the question on rhetoric is I just see we are constantly changing the goalposts. I mm -hmm. learned recently, and you know, I'm I'm someone who you know have an educated woman, but I just recently learned about Mott Bailey because it was what wasn't until, you know, that I was like, what is Mott Bailey? I was like, oh, and then I was like, oh, this is exactly what's happening. I mean, it's like, we're playing with words, putting them in different, you know, places when, when they, when we want to use them and then taking them out when we don't. And it's, it's fascinating to me how this conversation has evolved. Well, that's, I mean, and if you're used to hearing arguments on campus, you're already kind of tired of this approach and you've watched <laughs> friends do it. You've watched, yeah. you know, like you've actually experienced this uh, many times too often. 
And and for people who don't uh, know what Mott and Bailey means, it's basically it's an imagery about like a different kind of fortification. There's the forward position, and then there's retreating to the uh, the protection. And what that means as a practical matter is let's take defund the police. Um, defund the police was something that was put out as a slogan um, after the murder of George Floyd. And I want to be clear here, I thought that it was a horrifying um, incident that was hopefully going to be a moment when we could come together and pass in what I consider to be much needed police reform. I could think of about eight different reforms that we could have done. There were a lot of us who were, who were saying this at the time, basically like, we should do this. We Yes, absolutely. We want to prevent this from happening again. Um, but instead, what you got were, were and, and to be clear, there were activists who went out and, and did some of that work and some laws were passed, just not nearly enough, in my opinion. But unfortunately, a lot of the other activists, you know, um, went in different directions, including, you know, going after getting settling old scores on campus, which is why we had 1500 case submissions, um, you know, last year. Um, but also coming up with slogans like defund the police. And, you know, of course, Democrats who were sensible were saying that's a terrible slogan. People don't want to defund the police. But the argument was that it was that watching, you know, watching the media puppet this this argument. It's like, oh, no, no, we don't really mean that. We mean rethink the police. And it's like, no, 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 that's not really what's happening. What's happening is some of you really think there should be no police. And if you ask them, they will write articles saying like, no, we really mean, and these articles right. are out there. No, we really mean defund the police because for, for your more uh, radical element, which is not fringy in a lot of these cases, which is central to, uh, to, to a lot of these, they really think that, you know, get, getting rid of the police would be the solution. But you switch it back to the more sort of, of moderate people to say, oh, no, we just mean rethink the police, but we want to keep the slogan. That was one where I feel like the public didn't really fall for it, even though even though the media seemed to fall for it. They're like, no, no, violent crime is going up. We don't need to defund the police. Do we want to do it better? Yes. But so that's a classic sort of uh, Mott and Bailey rhetorical approach. Um, yeah, it, I've been meaning to write this this perfect rhetorical fortress article for for years. Um, and basically, the idea is that if you take all of the identity based um, arguments, uh, whether you're, uh, what color you are, what gender you are, whether or not you're transgendered. Since I found a case in which someone was, um, on campus, uh, transgender male was told that they now had privilege, um, and shouldn't be listened to because they're now male. And a transgender female was told that she has privilege because she used to be male. Um, and I'm like, bravo, like, like you've got the entire population of the planet that has ever lived is, it can, can be discontinued. And that's just the first defense in, in the perfect rhetorical fortress. The next one, have you done anything embarrassing or wrong in your entire life? <laughs> um, or, and, and, and what's funny is it doesn't even have to be that you actually did it. It's just, you have to be credibly, credibly accused of it. And that it's just, it's just, it's just um, for, like fortification after fortification. Um, yeah, uh, I, I, I do have to write it, but I, I try to go through like the numbers to be kind of like, okay, the first level of it is, are you a conservative? Because if you're a conservative, you're already written off. Um, and people would like to pretend that's not really the argument, but that was, I mean, I, I know from personal experience, like I, I, I was the kind of liberal who, to my eternal shame, when someone, when I found out someone was conservative, it was like, oh, I don't have to listen to them anymore. Um, and that's embarrassing to admit, but it's true. Um, and by the time you get through the multiple layers of it, like uh, based on identity and politics and age and all of these kind of non-arguments that are really just more like sneering at it, no argument can get through if they don't want it to. So what's our what's our strategy to extricate ourselves from all of this? 
and to return uh, a semblance of rationality to public discourse. It was a long time getting into it, and so it's going to be a long time getting out of it. I do think that there are. I, I do think that this is uh, clashing into um, corporations in a way that that we're hearing from you know people from corporations all over the country. You know, of course, writing me and hype privately to be kind of like, don't mention my company, but we're currently having a situation in which everybody thinks even the smallest negative social interaction on staff is something that human resources needs to know and that they have to have a town meeting about and all the, all this, all this kind of stuff. I do think that, I think it's going to take some companies having to fold, you know, before people start realizing that a lot of this way of arguing um, and thinking is, is to a degree dysfunctional, but the, you know the way back is, is hard. I, I, I've reached the point where I think we need a lot more new institutions. You know, I think we need, you know, uh, people argue about needing a new ACLU. People, you know, argue about needing a new American Association of University Professors. I also think we need some new experimental K through twelve. We need some new experimental universities, because I I I don't know if universities can pull their way out of this um, uh, situation. When, when you've reached the point where you can look someone in the eye and tell them that. Um, we charge $70,000 a year, uh, but that only covers half of educating a single student. And, and you really mean that you, you've lost the thread, like something, something, something crazy has happened. Um, considering like, uh, you know, some of these schools have GDP, uh, you, you know, have, have, um, uh, have savings as big as the GDP of, of, of major countries. Um, so Fire is trying to figure out lots of creative ways to um, bring some of these ideas back. I think that every student in the country should probably do a debate where they take the opposite position from them mm -hmm. at some point in high school. I think that uh, students should take a gap year in between high school and college. So, and preferably actually go out somewhere else in the country and do some, do some work, um, you know, actually actively meeting other people. I think we have to take active steps to get people more exposure to people who aren't like them. Um, to, to look seriously at problems that exist outside of their bubble. Um, but yeah, it's, it, there's no silver bullet and it's gonna take a lot of work. And I'm currently uh, you know, uh, trying to create as many resources and tools as, as possible. But I, I think that we've reached the point where you know, some entirely new institutions, you know, I, honestly, something I think would be helpful. And I, 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 if I go back in time, I would have created this. You know, a, a institution that's whole job is to spend a ton of money and all we do is we look at research and we try to replicate it, you know, and there are little institutions that do this in a small way, but do this on a massive scale and start pointing out that the replication crisis is real and why does it matter to, to, to CRT. Um, that if universities are ceasing to function effectively as producers of reliable knowledge, that will mean we have to rethink the whole thing. Um, and I think that uh, the end result could be places that are more serious about the pursuit of knowledge, hopefully ones that have lower overhead that aren't you know, overwhelmed with administrators and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think that, uh, but I think you have, to, you have to take on a lot of this stuff from every possible level, but you also need people to remember not to apologize for decent beliefs they had seven years ago. That essentially the idea that free speech is good, the idea that individual conscience is good, the idea that sometimes the answer is that's none of your business is good, the idea that sometimes you should try to know someone as a person rather than the color of your skin is a very good idea. Um, there, there, there has to be some recognition that it's okay to think like we did 
you know, before uh, before this all happened on the things that, and on our on our deepest ideals. They weren't mm. they haven't been proven wrong. They've just been shouted down. Mm. You know, on that uh, following up on David's question on how do we extricate ourselves from this, you I want to go back to something you said because I, I thought it was very interesting. You thought that we the moment that we're in really started with the anti-bullying moment and then kind of uh, there was a fire built around that with social media as well. Mm. Yep. Can you go back to to that and where you think that was really the origin of our current moment and maybe from there how we would get out of it because of course the idea of it's, it's again we get to into rhetoric right i mean anti-bullying sounds like a great idea right it, yeah. it, it depends on how <laughs> well it, it, it's interesting because the uh and, and i don't have to I know we don't have too much longer and I could, I could spend the next hour and a half talking about the inter <laughs> interrelationship between the two. I think that anti-bullying was more like a gateway drug mm -hmm. um, th that essentially gave an excuse for um, a cohort of uh, K through 12 administrators and teachers who sincerely believed that this kind of DEI teaching was essential that they get to people, to get to kids, that they get to kids early and the younger, the better, and the, the more persuasively, the better. And I think that if it hadn't been for the anti-bullying explosion of 2010, um, it would have gotten in through some other way, probably. But I do think that for something as noble, to be frank, as anti-bullying, and something that you could say, I was definitely saying at the time, still do, that no, there's no reason why kids needed to be as you know physically and verbally abusive as they were when we were kids. I mean, I got I got the, <laughs> I got the stuff beat out of me, uh, you know, many <laughs> times, and it, and it could be genuinely cruel. And there's no reason why we had to be as cruel as kids have always been. We could we could soften the blow on that, but particularly for for uh, you know gay kids or kids of color, kids from different uh, international backgrounds. I get it, but unfortunately, I think that the way it was taught focused a lot on the, some of the three great untruths that we talk about in Coddling the American Mind. I think it taught, you know, the uh, a simplistic narrative of good versus evil, bully against anti-bully, um, which is the great untruth number three, which is um, life is a battle between good people and evil people, which is not a sophisticated way of understanding right. the world. Mm -hmm. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker is one of the great untruths too, right. which I think anti-bullying has baked into it. And always trust your feelings. Um, the idea that uh, people making you uncomfortable is someone else's, you know, is, is that it's really important that people address your internal, your, your, your internal emotional state and that you address your own internal emotional state. And, and that's the one that sounds the nicest. But as far as, you know, my big push on cognitive behavioral therapy, a big part of therapy of any kind is learning that everything you feel doesn't have to be everything you do, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that I think it took a combination of forces all working at the same time. Some of them, if you have enough, you have a sufficiently, um, and I keep on using the word radicalized, uh, it might not even occur to think other people would not think of it as radicalized, ideological. If you have as uniformly ideological as a cohort of, of teachers coming out of K through 12, as we have for some time, that eventually you're going to run into problems like this um, that uh, look like political indoctrination. So this is, in a way, this is a very predictable problem. But social media um, has sped everything up, and it has fundamentally changed the, 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 the playing field. There have been a lot of detractors saying kind of like, oh, social media is not nearly as important as we think. I've only gone more in the direction of it was a absolute transformative global phenomena when suddenly you went from, uh, you know, uh, 
hundreds of thousands of, of, of people, you know, having access to, to writing and, and articles and, and being on TV to practically everybody having some way to get, get their ideas right in front of people. And I'm with Martin Gurry that he thinks of this as like the fifth wave of technological explosion that's utterly transformative. And I think it has had genuinely destabling global effects because what social media can do at the moment is it can tear anything, any idea, any institution and any person to bits because with billions of eyes on any individual thing that, and you can't analyze all the attacks, it's going to tear, it can tear anything it wants to pieces, but it can't build very well because getting billions of people to agree on what the right solution forward is also almost impossible. Mm -hmm. um, so I do think that some of the problems that we're dealing with have no easy solution other than we have to learn how to live in a society that is as connected as we currently are. Um, the idea of just closing it down, that's not going to work. Um, the, the, you know, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, so how, how do we fix it? You know, like I said, we need parents trying to stand up for the idea that they don't want, you know, particularly they don't want ideological K through 12, the extent to which it can be avoided. I think creating new institution goes a long way. I think that having K through 12 institutions that don't, uh, that, that are looser on the idea that you have to have an education degree. I think that there should be favoritism given to people who are going into education in K through 12 after having a career. You know, I think that, that, that people coming from like um, ha having a successful business or being a lawyer or having anything that, uh, that gives them greater life experience, those are the people who in many cases I want, want teaching kids. And actually, I also have a personal story on this. I love history. I always wanted to retire and what I mean by that is sometimes maybe in my late, late 50s, I wanted to stop whatever career I was doing and I was going to go and be a high school history teacher. Um, that was my dream from like the age of like 10 to maybe like 20. Um, I always thought that that, that was my trajectory. Um, it's not so much anymore. But one of the reasons why I didn't want to go straight into being a history teacher is I thought you had no business telling kids um, about uh, what the world looks like unless, unless you've been out in it. This has been great. Yeah, very informative as I imagined it would be. Didn't disappoint. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you know, we're at thefire.org. Um, my, my blogs on coddling the American mind are at the eternally radical idea. The new afterword for the book um, should be out sometime this fall. Uh, we'll definitely make some noise about it when it's out. I'm, I'm pretty, we're trying to put a lot of stuff together. I mean, some of the stats that have come out since, I mean, the main, like, really, the main thing that we got wrong is we didn't expect the trends that we spotted to be this intense and this quick. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, Hold My Drink, and the conversation gets real.